Matthew's uh, message this morning is titled, The Pursuit of Happiness, and it's asked that I read to you from Psalm number one, Psalm one. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in the sea, in its season, whose leaf also shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. The ungodly are not so. They are like the chaff which the wind drives away. Therefore the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. Good morning, church. Okay. I am really excited because we're starting a brand new series of sermons for the summer. For the month of June and month of July, we're going to be coming into the Psalms and studying a psalm, a new psalm each week. And I think that whether you are a lover of poetry or not, if you hang in there, you'll find out through this summer that the Psalms are both beautiful and incredibly useful. You know, song is a powerful way for us to take truth about God and drive it deep into our minds and our hearts. And at the same time, song is a powerful way for us to take truth about ourselves that is deep within us and be able to express that back to God. The Psalms are exactly that. They're the inspired songbook from God, inspired by God on how we learn to relate to him. And we want to be people that relate to God, devote to God, spend time with God and do that well. So what we're going to do this summer is walk through nine psalms and look at the meaning of them and, uh, and, and try to draw off from them what they can teach us. A quick side note on the nine that I've selected for us to do this summer. Um, just for those of you that may be wondering, well, there's 150. How did you pick the nine? What I did is I went to the New Testament and I saw what songs did our earliest brothers and sisters sing most often? What songs were most quoted? What songs were used most frequently in the New Testament church in which we see there um, in the New Testament? And I selected those nine psalms that stand out as our earliest brothers and sisters who sang these as their hymn book um, in praise to God. I want to tell you one other thing as a side note, and then we'll jump right in, and that's this. How you approach the Psalms is incredibly important. In fact, I'm going to tell you the way you approach the Psalms will dictate what you get out of the Psalms. The Psalms are a different type of book than the other writings we see in the Bible. They're not like the Torah, which is just the law and the instruction. They're not like the prophets, necessarily. Um, they're not necessarily a historical book, although there's history in the Psalms. The Psalms stand sort of on their own. They're not just a theological, instructional manual designed just to be read and studied. The Psalms were written to actually be sung. They were written to be involved with. Psalms is a divine songbook, and it invites you to join in the song and to follow the lead. And what I mean is... The Psalms must be lived if you want to experience true relationship with God. 
So these songs can't just be thought about. They can't just be studied. They can't just be listened to. These psalms have to be lived. Let me give you one example. In Psalm 139, David is saying in that psalm, verses 23 and 24, Search me, O God. Try me and test me, O God, to find out if there's any wicked way in me. Now that psalm can teach you about David. It can teach you historically how David lived and the things that David believed in. It can teach you theologically that God has insight into us. But if that psalm doesn't become what you live, meaning you go home and you say to God, I'm willing too to be searched and to be tested. Because God, like David, I also want to know if there's any sort of wickedness in me that you can get rid of. And so we've got to be people that learn the Psalms, but sing and live the Psalms. So let's start this morning with Psalm 1. We're starting there, not because it's oft quoted in the New Testament, but because it's sort of the gateway into the Psalms. In fact, um, it's actually put at the beginning because it's sort of the introduction to the rest of the book. And Psalm 1 starts where every single human starts. Psalm 1 starts where I want to start. It starts where you want to start. Psalm 1 starts with the pursuit of mankind to be happy. Psalm 1 starts with a person who is going to be a happy person. That word blessed, where he says blessed is the man, uh, can come across a little bit religious and churchy to us. What it's really getting after the Hebrew word just literally means the person who is happy is the person who does this. That's why we've entitled the lesson The Pursuit of Happiness. It's sort of what every human being is longing for and searching for. It's what we want um, is to be happy. Happiness is a state of being that soaks the most good out of delightful moments and yet is not rocked in difficult moments. It does not give up. Happiness is a condition of the soul, a blessed position of the soul that soaks up and enjoys the very best of what life has to offer. Not out of fear that it's going to leave and forgetting it, but, but actually soaking it up. And in the same moment, being blessed means we also endure in our difficult times. And you know, being happy is what we want in life. If you ask parents, what do they want for their kids? Most reasonable, healthy parents would say, you know, would you want them to be this, this, and this in their career? Usually they end up saying, you know, I just want my kids to be happy, right? Uh, it's what we want for our spouse. It's what we want for our friends. You know, every major field of study right now is seeing the incredible value of being happy. In the education field, they're finding that kids that are happy are kids that are ready to learn more actively. The medical field knows that when you are happy, it actually promotes better healing. In the psychological world, they know that people need to find a state of happiness if they're going to find any psychological health. And even in the business world, did you know this? That it's not, business leaders are now learning, that it's not success that makes people happy. But it's happiness that sets people up for success. You see this in the world. People can have all the money they could ever have. They could have all the achievements. They could have all the fame, and yet they're left sort of miserable in their soul, right? So it's not success that makes people automatically happy, but it's actually a, a sense of happiness that leads you to an opportunity for success. And, you know, happiness is actually what we want for ourselves. 
It's what we search for. It's what you're longing for. It's what you're looking for. And this psalm is trying to show us that happiness can be found. There's three really simple movements in the psalm. Verses 1 and 2, verses 3 and 4, and then verses 5 and 6. You'll see as we go through week after week that Hebrew poetry is not poetry written uh, with rhyming words. You know, we usually think of poetry like the word at the end rhymes, sort of like Dr. Seuss. Hebrew poetry is written in rhythm. It's written in rhythm. So you'll see meters like three, then two. So lines of three, then lines of two. Lines of three, lines of two. And what makes this beautiful about Hebrew poetry is that it can be translated and still poetic. You know, if you write uh, a poem in English, right, and you translate it to German, tell us guys that are going to Switzerland, how's that going to sound in, in, in the uh, German language? Does it rhyme? N- never, right? But Hebrew poetry is written in rhythm. And when you translate it, it still carries that rhythm. And there's three rhythms or movements in this text. I don't have time to show you them all. Verses 1 and 2 is the first rhythm. Verses 3 and 4 is the second rhythm. And verses 5 and 6 is the third. Let me give you the first one, verses 1 and 2. This psalm is all about how you find happiness. So if you're here today and you say, I want to be a happy person. I don't want to be miserable. I don't want to be grumpy. I don't want to be... Uh, frustrated. I want to be happy. Let's start with point number one. Happiness begins with a choice. Now I know that this might be the first hump that I've got to get over with you. Because a lot of times people actually don't believe that happiness is a choice. They think it's based upon circumstances. That if we can get certain circumstances arranged and figured out, then I'll finally be happy. Answer this question right now. What in your life is in front of you that you think the moment I get that, I'll finally be happy. For my kids, a couple weeks ago, it was like the moment school is out, you know, for a six-year-old. Then I'll be happy. And then maybe you're in high school and you say, the moment I graduate, I just can't wait. When that thing is done, then I'll be happy. And then maybe you get to college and you think the same thing. Or maybe you're moving into young adult age and you think... When I get married, finally when I get married, then I'll be happy. Or when I get the job I want, then I'll be happy. And when I get uh, tenure in my career, then I'll be happy. And when I get enough bank, uh, enough money in my bank account to relax, then I'll be happy. Or when I have kids, then I'll be happy. And when my kids are finally out of the house, I'll be happy. Why'd you laugh at that one? <laughs> Here's what I'm trying to tell you. Young, young years, listen, like five, six, seven, listen to me. You'll, you'll learn something. There's always a thing in front of you that is promising the lure of happiness. And that kind of happiness is circumstantial. Meaning it can be given to you by a circumstance and it can be taken by a circumstance. And if you live your life that way, you will always be waiting in neutral, longing for happiness. Happiness is not a result of circumstances. Happiness begins with a choice. Now, I understand uh, that I, I want to tell you about Bronnie Ware, this lady who was a palliative care nurse. She's now an author. She uh, took care of a lot of patients at the, end of her li- at the end of their life, and she observed that. And at the end of, uh, she ended up writing a book called The Top Five Reg- Regrets of the Dying. And she noticed a common theme with all of her patients. And the way that she words it is this. That her patients that were coming to the end of their life, it was funneling to a close, said this. We regret not letting ourselves be happy. Funny, right? 
something about the end of life that brings a little bit of power back into our hands, a little bit of assurance that maybe I could have in my life let myself be happy. Well, some people say, I just can't choose to be happy. Maybe you struggle with happiness. Maybe you're frustrated and angry and bitter and wrestling with things. And maybe you're kind of pushing back on the preacher this morning saying, I just can't choose to be happy. I can't just wake up tomorrow and feel all like giddy and joyful and frolicky and everything's great. You're exactly right. Because that's not actually the choice. Your choice tomorrow morning is not when you wake up and saying happy or not happy. That's not your choice. The choice is not be happy or not be happy. The choice is who do you follow and who do you listen to? Now, another thing people push back on is, um, as you notice here, the psalm, he reduces our choice down to two choices, right? The way of the wicked or the way of the ungodly and the way of the Lord, the law of the Lord. There's those two choices. And he reduces that not for simplicity's sake, but for truth's sake. Because there's only really two choices. And I know there's a lot of people that sort of push back on that. We live in a very subjective truth society that says, I'm going to do it my way. You know, is that Frank Sinatra's thing? I, I did it my way? Yeah, that's right. Frank Sinatra sort of taught us that in the 50s. I did it my way. And we sort of bought, onto that, bought into that, that we're autonomous, independent beings that just do what we want. And you might say, there's way more than just two choices in life. That... I'm not going to be obedient to a God. I'm going to do my own thing, independent. Or you might, not, you might say, I'm not going to submit to a law from a Lord. I'm going to be autonomous and run my own life. Well, what we see from the psalm, the undertone here is this. That we as people are not really independent and autonomous as we think we are. In fact, we are obedient and submissive people. The question is not, are you obedient and submissive or not? The question is, who are you obedient to, and to whom do you submit yourself? Every one of us does this. If you think that you're just your own person, you do your own thing, and nobody in this world influences you, you're lying to yourself. Notice what he says in verse 1. He sets us up with a negative and then a positive to make crystal clear who the happy person is, who they follow. He says, blessed is the man, verse 1, who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly or the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scoffers. There's a very careful progression in this text. He starts with, first of all, the progression of the people. It's ungodly, then sinners, and then scoffers. There's a natural progression there of the people, the who we obey. It goes from people that kind of dabble in rebellion to those who are constantly rebellious, the sinners. And then he comes to the scoffers. You know what scoffers are? Scoffers are the farthest people in this world from repentance. They're the ones that look at God and look at a law that is above them and say, I do my own thing, I got this. The word scoffer actually comes from the word ambassador, meaning they have their own message, they have their own voice, and they think they're saying their own thing. And here's the warning, the second progression is this how it affects our behavior. Because you notice he goes from counsel to standing to sitting. And the progression is this. From your thinking to your behavior to your belonging. This is how it works in our life. We go from just listening to other voices besides the voice of God on how to live, 
gaining counsel from people who don't actually get their counsel from the Word of God. And then we move into behavior. We stand in the way of sinners. We begin to mimic behavior and look like other people and do what other people do that are not following the way of God. And ultimately we end up, he says, sitting in the seat of the scoffers. We belong to them. And what he's saying is happy people don't actually do that. Happy people avoid counsel from ungodly, behavior of sinners, and joining the company of scoffers. They avoid that. But what they do is come to the Lord in verse 2. And there's two commands of how they interact. And if you notice what they're interacting with is God's law, God's instruction. Here's what the happy person does. They interact. They engage with God's instruction in two ways. First of all, with their attitude. He says they delight in the law of God. Meaning they love the law because of the law's intent. The instruction of God. What God wants to do when he instructs you is guide you to the very best life. To bless you. And people that understand that, that know God's intent, love the law because they know its intent. That's their attitude. And then we see their action. He says they meditate on this. To meditate just means to absorb something into your thought. This is the difference between Eastern meditation and Christian meditation. Eastern meditation, don't get this confused. Eastern meditation is emptying your mind of thought. Christian meditation is filling your mind. With God's word. Give me a head nod that you understand the difference. Eastern meditation is emptying your mind to have nothing. Christian meditation is filling your mind with God's word. And blessed is the man that delights because he knows what the law of God is for. So he delights in it. And then he meditates on it. The second thing I want to share with you, and this is it, we'll we'll move on. Is this. That happiness begins with a choice. Who you're going to follow. Who will I listen to? Who will guide my behavior, my life, my actions? Who is going to guide my mind? Who will I let do that? That's where happiness begins. Secondly, happiness is built with patience. When I speak of happiness, you probably think of uh, instantaneous emotional response like, oh, I'm sad and I'm down, but I get ice cream and now I feel happy. Now I'm better. And then something bad happens it begins to rain and i'm sad and i'm down and then the sun comes out and i'm happy and that's not what he's talking about here that's not what he's talking about he's talking about a man or a woman who understands god's guidance in life and meditates on that because he wants to have that kind of life and he uses this analogy he draws this beautiful picture in verse three to demonstrate this blessed man he says he's like a tree planted by water you see when he talks about a man who meditates on the word of god or a woman who meditates on god's word they become like a tree that's planted by water now why would you plant a tree by water do we plant a tree by water to make it like a pipe so that it can move water from one place to another place in the world is that what trees do with water are they just sort of god's uh plumbing system greg where we just put it here and it pumps water from this river to this ravine and then we've got water that's not what trees do with water right trees are planted by water to take water in absorb the water use the water and convert the water into fruit now this serves as encouragement but also a warning for how you interact with god's word let me explain 
I was just finished reading this book about a week ago called The Four Agreements. Uh, this is not a public recommendation that you should go get it, but I just did read it. It's, um, it's written by um, a, a man who is speaking about what he calls Tolic wisdom. Tolic wisdom was wisdom that came from uh, sage people about 3,000 years ago near Mexico City in Mexico. And they developed um, th this sort of wisdom on how to live life. And it's the four agreements that you have to make with yourself on how to live it. And it's really boiled down. It's pretty basic and it's pretty simple. And it's like basically like do your best, always be impeccable with your word, uh, don't take anything personal. You know, it's these kind of agreements. And if you do this, you'll have peace. And I'm reading it and reading it and um, just trying to get other people's perspective on how they live life. And I walk away thinking this thing, first of all. Have you ever wondered why the Bible is not that simple? You guys ever go to Huffington, maybe not Huffington Post, but you go on the web and you're like, how to be happy. And it's like nine ways and four ways and three things and do this and drink grapefruit juice and you'll be happy. And it's like people's wisdom is so boiled down and simple, right? And I'm reading this book and it's like these four things, you, you'll just have a peaceful life. And I'm like, why isn't the Bible just this simple? Well, here's why. And get this. I can right now recite to you the four agreements from the wisdom of that book intellectually. I can tell you them four right now. I can transfer the water through my pipe and give it back to you without it ever affecting you. Without it ever really having an impact on you. I can tell you to be impeccable with your word and not take anything personal and always do your best. Those are the agreements. I can tell you that. And it can go from my brain to my mouth out and give it to you. But God's word is not like that. He doesn't just boil things down so that you can learn them intellectually and spit them back out at people. You see, God's word is written in such a way that you won't get it until you live it. How brilliant of God that he would not let your mind get farther ahead than your feet. That's why you've got to get into the word of God. Spend time with it. Meditate on it. Bring it in and absorb it like water in a tree and convert it. If all you want from the Word of God is a list of nine things of how to be happy, you won't find it because that's cheap and that's dense. But if you get into the Word of God and work with patience, you'll become a person who has God's happiness. And you'll realize that happiness is not spontaneous, meaning just momentarily it just pops up out of nowhere, nor is happiness just emotional. Daily events drive our emotions north and south. Happiness is more than an emotion. It is a state of being that soaks in great moments and endures the difficult. You notice he says that the leaf does not wither, although there might be a drought. Unshakable happiness is not a reaction to events or people, but a result of investment in God's will and God's way. That's where you'll find happiness. The last movement we're done is this. That happiness is based on a promise. You see verses 5 and 6? The Lord knows the way of the righteous. The way of the wicked will perish. Your ultimate happiness is based. Like you'll make the choice to follow God and you'll have the patience to build happiness by enduring in his word. You'll have that kind of patience if you believe the promise that the Lord knows the righteous and the way of the wicked will eventually vanish, perish, be done away with. You'll believe that and you'll do it. That the stability of happiness is not based upon circumstances going right or people being perfect in your life. 
but on the promise of God's character that he rewards righteousness and the way of the wicked will perish. This is incredibly important for you to realize, especially when you see the way of the scornful working in life. You'll see it happen sometimes, and you've got to remember this. You see, this promise that the way of the righteous will be blessed and the way of the wicked will perish is beautiful, but it also presents us an incredible problem. Any sensitive reader of this text will have a problem eventually. When he says the way of the righteous, God will know and God will bless. What is the problem? How many of us in here claim, (laughs) I've got the way of the righteous figured out, nailed it. It's easy for me, I do it daily. We don't, right? So this promise is great, but it presents a problem because I'm actually, more times than not, not the way of the righteous. I fall more times in the way of the scornful. All of us in some way have followed the wrong path in verse 1, thinking, behaving, and joining with scoffers. Maybe we're locked into old thought patterns that this world is not fair or scary or nothing ever goes right for me. Or maybe we're locked into old bad habits that never serve us well. And maybe we've pursued happiness our own way that works, that does not work, and ultimately is failing us. And when we think about truly delighting in God's law, if we're really honest, It sounds nice, but it's incredibly difficult to love the law of God. How can we break through? You break through by looking at the one person who actually did all these things right. Jesus himself avoided the counsels, the way, and the seed of the scornful. Jesus himself delighted in God's law. Jesus himself meditated daily on the law of God. Jesus was the tree that was firmly planted by the water who soaked up and converted into fruit. He was the one who had a leaf that never withered. And yet what happened to him? He was the way of the righteous, right? The tree planted by the water. Yet what happened to him? Jesus ultimately still perished. But why? Did the promise for Jesus fail? No, it didn't fail. What Jesus was doing was restoring the promise for those who have fallen short. He lived the blessed life and submitted to the death of the wicked so that you and I could turn back again to God and have a blessed life as one who is righteous. And when you see him, the living and breathing, walking and talking word of God, the one to whom you can delight in and follow, you'll again see that God's will and God's way is something that we should meditate on and you'll pursue him for a happy life. How do you obey this? It's really simple. You've got to make the choice. And you've got to invest the time to pursue happiness and find it in Jesus Christ. If you need help doing that, we're always here to help. You can come as we stand and sing.